Additional incentive, then, had the young prophet to keep his gaze steadfastly on his master. Those who follow on to know the Lord were pressed forward in the race set before them, who suffered nothing to turn them aside from fully following Christ, are given to behold things which are hidden not only from the world, but also from their half-hearted brethren. A view of the unseen is ever the reward which God grants unto faith and fidelity. This was so with Abraham, John 8:56, with Moses, Hebrews 11:24, with Stephen, Acts 7:55, with John, Revelation 1 verse 1. But something more than spiritual vision was granted unto Elisha, namely spiritual perception. He not only saw but understood the significance of what he beheld. And Elisha saw and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Verse 12 Only as we ponder carefully the words of that sentence will the force of it be apparent. He did not say the chariot of fire, nor even the chariot of God, but the chariot of Israel. What did he mean? And why preface that explanation with the cry, My Father, My Father? He was interpreting for us the wondrous vision before him, the supernatural phenomenon described in the preceding verse. There was a divine suitability in Elijah's being removed from the scene in a chariot of fire driven by horses of fire. No other conveyance could have been more suitable and suggestive, though we have met no writer who appears to have grasped the significance of it. Why did God send the fiery chariot to conduct his servant to heaven? Let us endeavor to find the answer to that question. Scripture interprets Scripture, and if we turn to other passages where chariots and horses are mentioned, we shall obtain the key which opens to us the meaning of the one here before us. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. Good reason had Israel for saying that. Go back to the beginning of their national history. Behold them in their helplessness before the Red Sea, as Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, Exodus 14:23, menaced their rear. Ah, but behold the sequel. They are all safe on the other side singing, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts hath he cast into the sea. The depths have covered them. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Exodus 15, 3-6 
The ungodly may look to such things as horses and chariots for protection and prowess, but the saints will find their sufficiency in the name of the Lord their God. Sad indeed is it to see how woefully the favored nation of Israel failed at this very point. They soon forget his works, yea, they forget God their Savior. Psalm 106, 13 and 21, and relied upon the arm of flesh. They even sought alliances with the heathen until one of their prophets had to cry, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay upon horses and chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they looked not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Isaiah 31, 1 Now set over against this our present passage, and is not its meaning clear? As Elisha beheld that awe-inspiring sight, his soul perceived the significance thereof. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, thou, my master, hast been in the hand of the Lord Israel's real chariot and horses, their true defense against Jezebel and Baal's prophets, which are bent on their destruction. The nation was too carnal, too much given to idolatry to recognize what they were losing in the departure of Elijah. But Elisha realized it was the chariot of Israel which was being taken from them. This brings us then to the time when Elisha performed his first miracle. It was what men generally would deem a most unpropitious one when the prophet's spirits were at their lowest ebb. His beloved master had just been taken from him and deeply did he feel the loss. He took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. 2 Kings 2.12 That action was emblematic of his grief as a comparison of Genesis 37-34 and Joshua 7-6 shows. Yet it was a temperate sorrow, a controlled sorrow, and not an inordinate one. He only rent his garments in two pieces. Had he done more, they would have been wastefully ruined. His action may also have betokened Israel's rejection of Elijah. Compare First Samuel fifteen, twenty-six to twenty-eight. But severe as was his loss, and heavy as must have been his heart, Elisha did not sit down in despair and wring his hands with inconsolable dejection, repining over the loss of eminent ministers, accomplishes no good to those left behind, but rather enfeebles them. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. The darkest hour of all is the best time to prove his sufficiency. This is what Elisha did now. Second, consider now the object on which it is wrought. 
A formidable one it was, none less than the River Jordan. He had friends, the prophets at Jericho on the other side. The problem was how to conquer them. Probably he was unable to swim, or surely he had done so, as miracles are not wrought where there is no urgent need for them. There was no boat to take him over. How then was he to cross it? A very real difficulty confronted him. Let us note that he looked the difficulty squarely in the face. He went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan, verse 13, instead of foolishly playing the part of an ostrich which buries its head in the sand when menaced by danger. To cleave our eyes to difficulties gets us nowhere, nor is anything gained by the underestimating or belittling of them. The Jordan was a challenge to Elisha's faith, so he regarded it and so he dealt with it. That is why God suffers his servants and saints to be confronted with difficulties, to try them and see of what metal they are made. Third, the instrument and means for it. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. Verse 13. When his master's mantle fluttered to his feet, he knew beyond doubt that heaven had granted his request. Not only had he seen Elijah at the moment of his departure, but the gift of his prophetical garment was an additional token of receiving a double portion of his spirit. And now came the test. What use would he make of his master's mantle? Testing always follows the bestowment of a divine gift. After Solomon had asked the Lord for an understanding heart that he might judge his people wisely and well and discern between good and bad, he was quickly confronted by the two women, each claiming the living child as hers. 1 Kings 3, 9 and 16 no sooner did the Spirit of God descend upon Christ than he led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Scarcely had the apostles been endured with power from on high and begun to speak with other tongues than they were charged with being full of new wine. So he, Elijah's mantle fell at his feet but before Elisha reached the Jordan. Fourth, the mode of it. This is of deep interest and importance, for it inculcated a truth of the greatest possible moment. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters. Verse 14. That was what the mantle had been given to him for not to be idolized as a venerable memento, but to be made practical use of. Unto him that hath shall more be given, Luke 8, 18, which means unto him that hath, in reality, 
through evidences it, is improving a thing by putting it out to interest. By cleaving so steadfastly to his master, Elisha had already given proof that he was indwelt by the Spirit, and now the double portion became his. This too he used, and used in the right way. He followed strictly the example his master had left him. In the context, we are told, Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. 2 Kings 2, 8 Now his disciple did precisely the same thing. Is not the lesson for us as though it were written with a sunbeam? If the servant of Christ would work miracles, his ministry must be patterned closely after his master's example. Fifth, the meaning of it. In view of all that has been before us, this should now be apparent. As we have sought to show, Elisha is to be regarded all through the peace as the representative servant, as a figure of the ministers of Christ. In their call, their testings, the path they must tread, their spiritual endowment, and the miracles he performed are not to be taken as exceptions to the rule. What then is the meaning and message of this first miracle? The smiting of and dividing asunder the waters of the Jordan. Clearly, it is victory over death, ministerial victory. The servant of Christ is sent forth to address those who are dead in trespasses and sins, what an undertaking! How is he to prevail over the slaves and subjects of Satan? As Elisha did over the Jordan, he must be divinely equipped. He must obtain a double portion of the Spirit. By acting as Elijah did, using what has been given him from above, as he smote the waters in the exercise of faith, he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Give proof that thou art with me too. Sixth, the value of it. And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Second Kings 2, verse 14. There was the proof that though Elijah was not present, the God of Elijah was. There was the proof that he had received a double portion of his master's spirit. There was the proof that by using the same means as his master had employed, God was pleased to honor his faith and grant the same result. There was the proof of his power over death. Three times in Scripture do we read of a miraculous crossing of the Jordan. See Joshua 3.17 for the first, typifying, we believe, the victory of Christ over the grave, the deliverance of the church from spiritual death, and the resurrection of their bodies in the day to come. 
Here then is how the minister of the gospel furnishes proof of his calling and commission. By preaching the word, the appointed means, in the power of the Spirit, so that souls are born again. Such fruit is evidence that God is with him, granting him victory over death. Seventh, the recognition of it. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Verse 15. The miracle they had witnessed convinced them, and they owned him as the successor or representative of Elijah. The parted waters of Jordan demonstrated the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the regeneration of souls make manifest that the servant of God has been endowed with power from on high, and those with spiritual perceptions will own and honor him as such, for faithful ministers are to be esteemed very highly in love for their work's sake. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 If Romanists have gone to one extreme in unwarrantably exalting the priesthood and making it a barrier to prevent the individual Christian having direct dealings with God himself, the democratic spirit of our day has swung so far to the other side as to level all distinctions. Those who have received a double portion of the Spirit, are to be counted worthy of double honor, if they rule well. 1 Timothy 5.17 Chapter 5 Second Miracle And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men, Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. 2 Kings 2.16 Two things must be borne in mind in connection with this request, lest we be too severe in our criticism of those who made it. First, these young prophets had known that Elijah was to be removed from Elisha that day, as is clear from their words to him on a former occasion. Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? 2 Kings 2, verse 5 As to how they had learned of this, we cannot be sure, nor do we know how full was their information. Yet it seems clear they knew nothing more than the general fact that this was the day which would terminate the earthly career of the renowned Tishbite. Second, in verse 7 we are told, And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too, Elijah and Elisha, stood by Jordan. Here again, we cannot be certain what it was or how much they actually beheld. 
Perhaps some are ready to exclaim, if they were definitely on the lookout, they must have seen the remarkable translation of Elijah. For the chariot of fire and the horses of fire in midair would surely have been visible to them. Not necessarily so. Probably that fire, in quotes, was very different from any that we are acquainted with. Moreover, we must bear in mind that on a later occasion the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elijah, yet his own personal attendant saw them not until the prophet asked, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. 2 Kings 6.17 We are therefore inclined to believe that as these young prophets watched, Elijah suddenly and mysteriously disappeared from their view without their actually beholding his miraculous translation to heaven. Consequently, they felt that something unprecedented and supernatural had taken place and they ascribed it to a divine intervention, as their reference to the Spirit of the Lord intimates. Though they must have realized that an event quite extraordinary had occurred, yet they were uneasy, fearful that something unpleasant had befallen their teacher. They were deeply concerned, and veneration and love for Elijah prompted their petition. Let us seek to put ourselves in their place and then ask, had we acted more intelligently? At any rate, was their request any more foolish than Peter's on the Mount of Transfiguration when he said to Christ, If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Matthew 17, 4. Moreover, it should be observed that they did not rashly take matters into their own hands, but respectfully submitted their request unto Elisha. Before criticizing them too harshly, let us make sure that our hearts are as warmly attached to God's servants as theirs, and that we are as troubled over their departure as they were. Elisha tersely refused their request. Ye shall not sinned. But why did he not explain to them the uselessness of such a quest by informing them exactly what had happened to Elijah? Probably because he concluded that if the Lord had intended them to know of his servant's miraculous exit from this scene, he had opened their eyes to behold what he himself had been permitted to see. Not all of the twelve witnessed Christ's transfiguration. Moreover, is there not a hint here as to why this privilege had been withheld from them in the statement that they stood to view afar off? Not so Elisha, who followed his master fully, it is only those who draw near that enjoy the highest privileges of grace. Finally, 
we may learn from Elisha's reticence that there are some experiences which are too sacred to describe unto others. Oh, for more of such holy reserve and modesty in this day of curiosity and vulgar intruding into one another's spiritual privacy. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Sinned. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. Verse 17. Let it not be forgotten that up to this time only one individual from all mankind had gone to heaven without passing through the portals of death. And it is very doubtful if the contemporaries of Enoch, or those who lived later, knew of his translation. For the words, he was not found, Hebrews 11:5, intimate that search was also made for him. By Elisha's being ashamed, we understand that he felt if he were to continue refusing them, they would likely think that he was being influenced by an undue desire to occupy Elijah's place of honor. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? 2 Kings 2.18 Now they must have felt ashamed. Matthew Henry said, This would make them the more willing to acquiesce in his judgment another time. End of quote. This brings us to Elisha's next miracle. First, let us consider the order of it. It was Elisha's second one, and the scriptural significance of that numeral cast light upon this point. One expresses unity and sovereignty. One stands all alone. But where there are two, another has come in. So in the first miracle, Elisha acted alone and none contributed aught thereto. But here in this one, Elisha is not alone. A second party is seen in connection with it, the men of Jericho, and they were required to furnish a new cruise with salt therein before the wonder was performed. Probably this very fact will prove a serious difficulty to the thoughtful hearer. Those who have followed closely the preceding chapters of this series will remember how we pointed out again and again that Elisha is to be regarded as a representative character, as a figure of the servants of Christ. Some may conclude the type fails us at this point, and it will be said, Surely you do not believe that ministers of the gospel demand something at the hands of sinners in order to their being saved? Our answer will be given under the meaning of this miracle. Second, let us take note of the place where this occurred. It was at Jericho. This too is very illuminating. Jericho had been the first city of the Canaanites 
to defy the children of Israel, for it was closed and barred against them. Joshua 6, verse 1 Whereupon it was pronounced that cursed and orders were given that Israel should not appropriate anything in it unto themselves. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing. Joshua 6.18 By the power of Jehovah, Jericho was overthrown, following which his people burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Verse 24 After which the fearful denunciation went forth. Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. Verse 26 But both of those divine prohibitions were frouted. The first by Achan, who saw among the spoils the goodly Babylonian garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, Joshua 7:21, which he coveted and stole, for which he and his family were stoned to death and their being destroyed by fire. The second prohibition was broken centuries later in the reign of the apostate Ahab. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. 1 Kings 16.34 Thus Jericho was the city of the curse. It was the first place in Canaan where defiance of the Lord and his people was displayed. It was there that Israel, in the person of Achan, committed their first sin in the land of promise. A fearful curse was denounced against the man who should have the effrontery to rebuild the city. That there is an unmistakable parallel between these things and what occurred in Eden scarcely needs pointing out. But we must not anticipate. That which is now before us is the fact that in defiance of the divine threat, Jericho had recently been rebuilt. Probably the attractiveness of its locality was the temptation to which Hiel yielded, as the pleasantness of the fruit in Eve's eyes induced her to partake. Genesis 3.6 For we are told, and the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant. Second Kings 2.19 Third, the object of it, namely the springs of water. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth. But the water is not, and the ground is barren. Second Kings 2.19 Herein God had evidenced his displeasure on that accursed rebuilding of Jericho by making its water unwholesome and the ground barren, or, as the margin gives, causing to miscarry. The Jewish commentators understood this to mean that these waters 
cause the cattle to cast their young, the trees to shed their fruit before it was mature, and even the women to be incapable of bearing children. The Hebrew word which is rendered the water is not ra is a much stronger one than the English denotes. In the great majority of cases it is translated evil, as in Genesis 6, 5, Proverbs 8, 13, bad, as Genesis 24, 5, and so forth, and wicked, no less than 31 times. Its first occurrence is in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9. But it signifies not only evil, but that which is harmful or injurious to others, being translated the hurtful sword, Psalm 144, verse 10. Jericho then was pleasant for situation, but there was no good water for its inhabitants or their flocks and herds. This was a serious matter, a vital consideration for the Israelites were an essentially pastoral people. Observe how often we find mention of the wells in their early history. Genesis 16, 14, 21, 25, 26, 15 and 22, 29, 2, Numbers 21, 16 to 18 and so forth. These men of Jericho then lacked the one thing needful. How this reminds us of another and later incident in the career of Elisha. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Assyria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Assyria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. 2 Kings 5, 1 In spite of his exalted position, his endowments, his exploits, he liked the one thing needful, help. He was a leper, and that neutralized, spoilt everything else. And thus it is with every man in his natural condition however favored by creation and by providence, the springs of his life are defiled. Fourth, the means used. And he said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the springs of water and cast the salt in there. Verses 20 and 21. The appropriateness of this particular means for counteracting the effects of the curse is at once apparent. Salt is the grand purifier and preserver. It is by means of the salty vapors which the rays of the sun distill from the ocean that the atmosphere of our earth is kept healthy for its inhabitants. That is why the sea breezes act as such a tonic to the invalid and the convalescent. Salt prevents putrefaction, hence, after the backs of prisoners were scourged, salt was rubbed into the wounds, 
Though extremely painful, it prevented blood poisoning. Salt is the best seasoning. How insipid and unsavory are many foods without a sprinkling of it. Salt is the emblem of divine holiness and grace, and so we read of the covenant of salt. Numbers 18, 19, 2 Chronicles 13, 5. Hence also the exhortation, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Colossians 4, 6 With the savor of true piety. The ministers of Christ are therefore denominated the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13 Fifth, the instrument of it. Obviously, the salt itself could not heal those unwholesome waters any more than the rods or twigs of the trees with their white streaks that Jacob peeled in them and set before the flocks were able to cause the cattle to bring forth young ones that were ring-streaked, speckled, and spotted. Genesis 30, 37-39 to Though the men of Jericho were required to furnish the salt, and though the prophet now cast the same into the springs, he made it clear this would avail nothing unless the blessing of Jehovah accompanied the same. His power must operate if anything good was to be accomplished. Therefore we find that as Elisha cast in the salt, he declared, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed the waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or causing to miscarry. Second Kings 2 verse 21 Thereby the prophet disclaimed any inherent power of his own, yet he was instrumentally employed of God for the very next verse says, So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. I have planted, Apollos watered, they were the instruments. But God gave the increase, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Sixth, the meaning or typical significance of it. The first key to this is found in the order of it. Under that point, we intimated that probably some hearers would find a difficulty in the men of Jericho being required to furnish the salt and be inclined to object. Surely, the minister of the gospel, for as a figure of such, Elisha is here to be viewed, does not demand anything at the hand of sinners in order to their being saved, but such a difficulty, like most, but not all others, is self-created, and that through entertaining vague and general concepts instead of distinguishing sharply between things that differ. When we speak of salvation, we refer to something that is many-sided. If on the one hand we must guard most carefully against the error of man's contributing anything unto his regeneration, 
On the other, we must watch against swinging to the opposite extreme and denying that man is required to concur with God in connection with his reconciliation, preservation, and so forth. The typical picture which is here set before us is divinely perfect, yet we need to view it closely if we are to see its details in their proper perspective. The first miracle, the smiting of the Jordan, adumbrates the ministerial power of the evangelist over death, and in connection with the new birth, he contributes nothing whatsoever unto it. See John 1.13 But the second miracle images a later, the second experience in the history of those truly converted. This miracle at Jericho speaks of neutralizing the effects of the curse, overcoming the power of innate depravity, and here the minister of the gospel acts not alone, for in this matter there is the conjunction of both the divine and the human elements. Thus the second key to its meaning lies in the place where it occurred. It is true that the conjunction of the divine and human element in conversion cannot be so closely defined as to express the same in any theological formula. Nevertheless, the reality of those two elements can be demonstrated both from Scripture and experience. We do not like the expression, man's cooperating with God, for that savors too much of a dividing of the honor, but man's concurring with God seems to be both permissible and necessary. The third key is contained in the fact that these men of Jericho are represented as taking the initiative, coming unto Elisha, acquainting him with their need, supplicating his assistance. Apparently, they knew from his dress that Elisha was a prophet, and as he no doubt still carried Elijah's mantle, they hoped he would use his power on their behalf. The servant of God ought to be readily identified by his emblematic garments or spiritual graces, easily accessible and approachable, one to whom members of a community will gladly turn in their troubles. Elisha did not repulse them by saying, This lay outside his line of things, that his concern lay only with the young prophets, Instead, he at once intimated his willingness to help. Yet something was required of them. Compare chapter 4, verse 41 and 5, 10 for further illustrations of the same principle. They were told to provide the new crews with salt therein. That put them to the proof. It was a test as to whether they were willing to follow the prophet's instructions. They promptly heeded. How different from many who disregard the directions of God's servants. This miracle then does not give us a history of the servant of God going unto those who are utterly unconcerned 
dead in trespasses and sins, but rather that of awakened souls seeking help, acquainting the minister with their need. In the first miracle it is God acting in sovereign power, enabling his servant to ministerially triumph over death. Here it is his servant addressing human responsibility in bidding awakened and inquiring sinners provide a new cruise and put salt therein, he is but saying to them, Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 18.31 And compare James 4.8 These men of Jericho could not have procured the new cruise and the salt unless God had first placed it at their hands, and the sinner cannot bring a responsive and obedient heart unto the minister until God has previously quickened him. That this miracle is instrumentally attributed to the saying of Elisha, the Hebrew term debar, is rendered word in 1 Kings 17, 2, 8, and 11, denotes that awakened sinners are delivered from the effects of the curse as they obey the instructions of God's faithful servants. Seventh, the permanency of it. Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or causing to miscarry. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spake. Verses 21 and 22. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.